you have a Bible, you can take it and turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1. And we'll be in verses 1 through 11 this afternoon. Last week we introduced the book of Acts and this study that we're stepping into um, and said that one way to state the call of the book of Acts to each of us here in 2018 is that it is inviting us to join in on the unstoppable, ever-expanding, spirit-empowered spread of the good word of Jesus to all people for the glory of God. That we are called with the disciples and with the early members of the church to be a part of God's great work in spreading his kingdom in his world. The book shows that the shows this call and these first verses really sort of draw out that theme which would make sense for any book that you would state the theme pretty clearly early on. Um, and today I want us to look at, at Acts 1, 1 to 11 and see in this passage a simple main idea which is this, Jesus prepares and equips us as witnesses to the world. Jesus prepares and equips us as witnesses to the world. That as Jesus calls us to join in on what he is doing, he is also preparing and equipping us for this task. So you might imagine starting a a new job that you have no prior experience in. UPS is a large employer here in in Louisville. Uh, Maybe some of you have even spent time working for UPS at some point. Can you imagine any of us, though, you know, getting a call and, and getting a job there at UPS and going into the warehouse on your first day and them saying, all right, just get to work, get the job done that, you know, deliver the packages where they're supposed to go, whatever your part is. Uh, if they set you loose without any training, without any tools, then it would be a waste of everyone's time. They need to give you the training and they need to equip you for the job that they are giving you. And so we see that when Jesus calls us to be his witnesses in the world, to join in on this, this movement um, that he prepares and he equips us for the task. We'll see here that he not only teaches and encourages his disciples, but ironically, Jesus equips his disciples by leaving them. If we want to join in on the work that God is doing in our world, then we must be prepared and equipped for it. And Jesus prepares and equips us as witnesses in this world. And God does this for each of his children. It could be sometimes I think that we struggle moving forward and being witnesses of God's grace in our world and the different spheres of influence that we have because we have failed to understand just how prepared and equipped we are to boldly stand forth as witnesses for Christ, witnesses of the good news that he's given us, how transformative it actually is in our own lives. And I hope today that we would be encouraged by God's perfect preparation for all of his children to do the work of spreading his name and his fame in this world. So let's read Acts chapter 1 verses 1 through 11. Luke writes, In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, You heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. I was struck even in reading that how quickly we can go over verses 9 and 11 as something that we just know happened. So let me read them again and remember what happened here. When he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus prepares and equips us as witnesses to the world. As of today, we are 35 days into 2018. You might go in your mind back to New Year's Day and consider the amount of time and things that have passed since then. Or maybe you could go back in your mind to Christmas Day. Christmas Day, we're roughly... 42 days away from when Christmas was. 35 days, 42 days. Those aren't long periods of time, but they're also not insignificant periods of time. For some of us, we know that a lot has happened uh, since those time markers. Life can change a great deal in a very short period of time. And we're told in Acts 1 that Jesus was with the disciples for 40 days after his resurrection before he ascended to the Father. So just a time idea to think about how long that that was. Forty days that the disciples actually never expected to have with Jesus. Three days after his death, the apparent reality that they would never see Jesus again surely began to settle in on them. Uh, They'd moved through all the different stages of grief, and they were coming to a place of acceptance when some women came in and returned from the tomb and said that they had seen Jesus and that he was alive. Can you imagine the shock? We might relate uh, more to the disciples' skepticism than to the women's faith. Um, At least I do. But of course, soon after the report of the women, the disciples also saw the resurrected Jesus. They saw him in the upper room there in Jerusalem where he ate some fish in front of them. Uh, And then some others saw him on the road to Emmaus, you remember, 
There's some other appearances, and these appearances, for the most part, happened in Jerusalem. If you read the Gospel of Matthew, though, at the end, Jesus keeps telling his disciples to go to Galilee. Go to Galilee, and I will meet you there. I'll meet you in Galilee. So if you want to piece together what was going on in these, these 40 days, then we would say that what must have happened is that there were some appearances early on in those early days after Jesus rose from the dead that happened in Jerusalem. But then there were also some that happened in Galilee before then the disciples came back to Jerusalem to be on the Mount of Olives when Jesus ascended. I think that makes perfect sense, especially when you start to piece things together, because we know that if they had to go to Galilee, um, the account in John 21 is where Jesus meets them on the beach by the Sea of Galilee. This is in Galilee. You remember that's the time the disciples caught 153 fish at the suggestion of a stranger on the beach who turned out to be the Lord himself. It was where Jesus then cooked breakfast for them, ate some more fish. Jesus must have enjoyed fish. Um, It's where he called Peter to take care of his sheep. It's where he talked about what was going to happen to the disciples in the future. After that appearance, we don't really know much of what specifically happened in those 40 days before the 40th day, which would be when Jesus was taken into heaven. But here in Acts 1, Luke gives us sort of a general idea of three things that were going on. I don't, these are not necessarily events, but maybe themes that filled these, these 40 days, this 40-day encore to the resurrection as Jesus kind of takes the tour and, and sees everyone. The first thing that was happening in these 40 days is that Jesus was continually proving that he was alive. For 40 days, Jesus was continually proving that he truly was alive. You see that in verse 3. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days. So Jesus is continually proving that he was alive. He did more than eat just fish, though I imagine there were a lot of meals that happened. Uh, Whatever he did, he was proving that he truly had risen from the dead. He was providing, as the NIV and the NES translate it, convincing proofs, solid evidence that he really was alive, that he was a physical human being once again, though his resurrected body was different than the one he had had before. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that one specific thing happened during that, namely that during one of those 40 days, he appeared to a crowd of more than 500 people at one time. That's all we know about that event, but it must have been pretty amazing. That's a, that's a convincing proof of the resurrection that we have. As we think about these, these 40 days, I don't imagine that he was around for every one of them. But he continually shows up and he shows everyone that this resurrection was the real deal, that he had truly died and that he really was now alive forevermore. The disciples needed these 40 days because they are just like you and me. They are skeptical and they are doubting, uncertain and easily persuaded that their beliefs were wrong, that our beliefs are wrong, that they're foolishness. They needed some convincing just as we all do And some of us need more convincing than others. In fact, the more that we think about these men and women, um, the more that we think about how these men and women are like us, then the less we will say things like, I wish that Jesus would just appear to me. Because when we realize 
that, that he has appeared to them, that we are just like Thomas, we are just like Andrew, one may be believing more quickly than the other, but we're just like Philip, we're just like Peter. Some are more easily persuaded, some need some more persuading, but we can all enter into their experience and realize that Jesus actually appeared to each of them and that they all believed. And we can say he truly rose from that. He doesn't need to appear to me because he did appear to someone just like me in his appearances to all these other people during those 40 days. And they believed. We say of Adam and Eve that, like, that, that we are like them. And, and we too would have been deceived in the garden. We would have rebelled against God. None of us need to have been in the Garden of Eden to prove the reality of the fact that we would have sinned. And I think in a similar way, none of us actually had to be around during those mysterious 40 days to know that if we were a disciple and we had been there and we saw Jesus in the way that he showed himself, that we would have moved slowly from fear and doubt to boldness and confidence. Faith is a gift of God, but it's also well evidenced by many people, and we are represented in these people. The truth of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus are well attested. And if we have eyes to see, then they will change our lives. Jesus truly lived a perfect life to give us a righteousness that can be ours. Jesus truly died to pay the penalty for our sins and offer us forgiveness. Jesus truly rose from the dead to give us new life, calls us to repent, calls us to believe so that we might know him as our Savior and as our Lord. So Jesus was there, and in these 40 days, he's continually proving that he was alive. But verse 3 also tells us that he was speaking about the kingdom of God. So the second thing that was happening, the second theme, was that Jesus was continually teaching about the kingdom. 40 days of teaching about the kingdom of God. Jesus was continually teaching about the kingdom. I think we get a glimpse into what those teaching times may have been like in Luke 24. We read this last week, but let me read it again. Luke 24, 44 to 47. Then Jesus said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. It would seem that in these days Jesus is connecting the dots for the disciples. He's helping them see that he's the fulfillment of all these things, that that the Old Testament was speaking about him, that what had happened in his death and his resurrection was part of the plan from the beginning and that the kingdom was now going forward through repentance and faith, that it would begin in Jerusalem and it's going to spread to all nations, that it's more than a physical kingdom, that it's, it's more than they ever imagined. He's trying to open up their minds to understand what he is doing in the world. We might wonder, at least I do, why are those words spoken during the 40 days not recorded? Why don't we have the teachings of Jesus after the resurrection like we have the teachings of Jesus before the resurrection? Wouldn't those things be helpful to all believers? I would download that podcast. I would listen to him. I could be wrong, but I think we do have those teachings. They're not recorded as from the mouth of Jesus directly, but they're on the lips of the apostles and the early disciples of Jesus in the book of Acts and also in the epistles of the New Testament. 
Remember that Luke's gospel was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And now in Acts, we see what Jesus was continuing to do and teach through his disciples. The disciples didn't have an original message. In many ways, they're probably expounding on what they learned during those 40 days. This is the fulfillment of the promise that they would do greater works than Christ, that the, that the least in the kingdom is a greater prophet than John the Baptist because of what they knew, what Jesus taught them. It's a fulfillment that the Spirit would call to remembrance all the things that Jesus had told them, and they would say those things, and we would read them here in the New Testament. Through the disciples, Jesus continues to do and say amazing things, and we read about them here. The message continues. Jesus spent time teaching his disciples about the kingdom so that through them we too could learn about his kingdom that we have been brought into through repentance and faith. These are the words that have become for us the prophetic word made more sure. That's what, that's what Peter calls it. More sure than even seeing Jesus transfigured before, his, before our very eyes. I wrote a book by Frederick Buechner, and he says, Our eyes are not all that we have foreseen with, maybe not even the best that we have. We always want to see things with our eyes, but we may see better through other things. We see real truth the real truth of things with the eyes of our heart, with the eyes of faith. That's how we see what's really real. We see and hear Christ by faith as we read the words of Jesus on the lips of the early church, inspired by the Holy Spirit, preserved for us. I hope we read them like that, as if the resurrected Christ is speaking to us through them in these days after his resurrection, because in many ways he truly is through his Spirit. So what's going on in these 40 days? Well, Jesus is preparing and equipping his disciples for what lies ahead. And he is fulfilling them with confidence regarding this resurrection. He's saying, I have truly risen. So this thing can keep going forward. It doesn't have to fizzle out. He's also giving them more instructions about the nature and the reality of this kingdom that they are a part of. You guys need to understand how big this thing is. He does that for all of us through this teaching. And third, during these 40 days, Jesus is, was commissioning and commanding his disciples for what was coming. He was commissioning and commanding his disciples for what was coming. Sending them out, getting them ready for what's happening. We see that uh, a general statement in verse 2, until the day he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. He's giving commands. Uh, there's a very specific, very practical command. It's actually two parts. It's found in verses 4 and 5. While staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Here's the command, two parts. Don't leave Jerusalem. <laughs> Second part, wait for the promise of the Father, which is the Spirit. He expounds on that in verse 5, that, this, that he's, they're going to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Don't leave Jerusalem. Regarding this command to not leave, there would have been fear associated with staying in Jerusalem. I think things probably had died down, but this is still the place where Jesus had been arrested. He'd been falsely accused. He'd been murdered. Peter had cut off a guy's ear and somehow got away without facing any consequences of that. And he's got to go back to the place where that, all that had just happened. I don't imagine that they were anxious to get back to Jerusalem. They were probably looking for any excuse to leave and to head back to the relative security 
of Galilee, which is why Jesus has to say, don't leave. Stay in Jerusalem and stay long enough for the promise of the Father to come. They shouldn't have to wait long for that. Jesus says the promise will arrive not many days from now. How wonderfully assuring and painfully vague that statement is. Not many days from now, guys. It's going to happen. That would be horrible, especially if you're just itching to get out of town. That's like ordering something online and then the estimated delivery on the confirmation page. It says, this will arrive not many days from now. (laughs) What's the company's definition of many? When will it come? Give me some sort of window, right? Three to five days, you know, even four to seven. All it can deal with that, but not many days. What's the definition of not many days for God who... A day with the Lord is like a thousand years. Now, when is this going to happen? Well, the disciples should be able to wait a little bit longer because they've been waiting for this promise for more than three days. In fact, they've been waiting at least for this promise for three years. The quote of verse 5 we saw is on the lips of John the Baptist at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. The Spirit's promise coming happened when John arrived on the scene. He said that his ministry was nothing compared to the Messiah's because he baptized with water but there was one coming who would baptize with the Holy Spirit. And they thought that that would probably happen pretty soon, but they waited three years and then it it didn't. And even before that, Israel's waiting for this. Acts 2, Peter quotes the prophecy of Joel 2.28. Here's a prophecy thousands of years before, and it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Your old men shall dream dreams and your young men shall see visions. Even on the male and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit. The coming of the spirit reminds us of the days when Israel was in the wilderness and the glory of God, his presence would come and dwell on them as a people. And yet something greater is coming. The spirit of God is coming that all of God's people have been longing for this, this moment. And in the shadow of all that longing, if we can take the old Testament longing for the presence of God to be with his people, to be with each person, this longing all the way up to John the Baptist prophecy And now in this moment, Jesus says the baptism of the Spirit is going to happen. It's coming. Not many days from now. It will be (laughs) soon-ish. So wait. Stay in Jerusalem. Don't leave. And all of these things, Jesus is preparing and equipping his disciples for what he is going to ask them to do. And as, as we read... Through all this, we see that he does the same for us. He gives us confidence in the reality of the resurrection. He truly rose from the dead. He gives us a deepening understanding of the nature of the kingdom, that it's not some sort of localized thing. It's, it's way bigger than we ever imagined. It's ever expanding. It's powered by the Spirit. He gives us this deep understanding, and then he sends the Spirit to dwell in us and to empower us. He's preparing us. He's, he's equipping us for this work. He's not going to just send us onto the job without any help. He's getting us ready. We've got to hold on to those things. Jesus truly rose from the dead. Jesus' kingdom is bigger than anything we could imagine. The Spirit is coming to indwell us. Now, the Spirit, that's going to come later in the book. There's a foreshadowing in verses four and five it leads to this scene in verses six through eleven and then we sort of see the fulfillment of what jesus is talking about in chapter two on the day of pentecost when the spirit comes and so we'll wait lord willing until we get there to talk about that 
So what we want to see now, though, in verses 6 through 11, this is, helps us to be prepared and equipped as well. And I want to summarize verses 6 through 11, kind of a, a thought underneath this preparing and equipping us for the task with something hopefully that's fairly memorable, which is this. I think what verses 6 through 11 is telling us is this. We need Jesus to ascend and the Spirit to descend so that we can be sent in power. These are the things we need. We need Jesus to ascend. This is a necessity. We need Jesus' ascension. We, ge- we need Jesus to ascend, and then we need the Spirit to descend and fill us with power in order that we can be sent in power. All these things need to happen. Jesus must ascend. The Spirit must descend, and then we can go out in power. Another less pithy way to say it would be part of the way that Jesus prepares and equips us to be witnesses in the world is through the ascension and the sending of the Spirit. We're going to focus on the ascension this afternoon because that's the focus here, but it's integrally tied to the sending of the Spirit, so I want to mention them together. We see after the general comments of verses 1 through 5 that we arrive at a specific location for a specific and eternally important event. Verses 1 through 5 summarize a lot, but 6 through 11 probably took place in a matter of hours, I would imagine. And as we we look at what occurs in these verses, we know that it didn't just happen in Jerusalem, but specifically it happened on the Mount of Olives in Bethany. Bethany. Luke 24 hints at this, but then in Acts one twelve we see that this was on the Mount called Olivet. If you know your geography a little bit, this is east of Jerusalem, just across from the Kidron Valley, and it's within sight of the Temple Mount. It's a Sabbath day journey. It's probably a a little bit over a half mile from the east gate to get up to the Mount of Olives, very close to the city of Jerusalem. Now, less than two months ago, the disciples and Jesus had been at this very same spot. It's recorded in Luke 19. Tensions are, are rising around Jesus, and they're especially high in Jerusalem. So when he gets closer and closer to the city, it's like a burning fuse getting closer and closer to a giant powder keg, and it's going to blow. And Jesus is fully aware of this. And despite the tension, or maybe knowing Jesus because of the tension, he, when he arrives on the Mount of Olives, he says to two of his disciples, go get a donkey. And he rides from the Mount of Olives down the Mount of Olives, and he enters into the east gate of Jerusalem while everyone is crying Hosanna and waving palm branches. And to the frustration of the, the religious leaders, they look around and they say the whole world is going after him. Within a week of that event, he would be crucified. So now imagine that you're the disciples and you're with Jesus again about 40 days after that thing had happened. I imagine that if I'm there with them, what I'm, what I'm remembering is I'm remembering what had happened. I'm remembering the triumphal entry. And I'm thinking that this is going to happen again. Even in Luke 19.11, we're told that the people supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. Given their location, not to mention all this talk about the kingdom and the spirit, we should not be surprised that the disciples then say, Lord, is it now that you're going to restore the kingdom? Is that going to happen now? Because it didn't happen last time that you entered in Jerusalem. 
So is it, is it going to happen now? We shouldn't be surprised. But then again, maybe we should be surprised. Because if Jesus has been teaching them about, about a kingdom that's built on repentance and faith, that's going to spread to all nations, then why are they asking about some earthly kingdom built in Jerusalem for one specific people? Did they, did they miss all of this? I think they ask that because they think like how we all think. We think in terms of earthly power and physical kingdoms that are centered around our own myopic worldviews that's centered upon ourselves and what we think is important. We get bogged down with our own flesh and blood. We think about political power and cultural acceptance and pain-free discipleship and walking with Jesus where there's no threat of persecution and there's no opposition in the world. And that's what the disciples want. And no matter how often we are instructed about the kingdom, we fall back to these old ideas of physical power, of, of earthly might that promote what we want. So Jesus corrects there and our confusion, and he does it very gently. He doesn't reject this idea of an earthly kingdom, but he says that that's not the concern right now. The Father knows when that's going to happen. He's not setting up the kingdom in the way that they think. And instead, he commissions them as, as witnesses as those who would testify to what they had seen and heard, and to do that in all the world. We saw last week that Acts 1-8 is sort of the geographical outline for the book of Acts, that the gospel through the disciples is going to spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the world. And now, if, if this is the commission, if the worldwide spread of the good news of Jesus, if that's the goal, then it makes sense that he would not go to Jerusalem to take on the throne. The goal of Jesus' kingdom is not to reign in Jerusalem or in Israel for that matter. So instead of getting on a donkey and going back into the city, imagine what that would be like. Then we just killed this guy about a month ago. That would be amazing, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't get on a donkey. Rather, he's taken up into heaven in a cloud. His mode of transportation is much different this time, this second time, and his destination is also very different. He says in his words, and he says through his ascension, he says, I'm not going to Jerusalem to be enthroned. I'm going to my father to be enthroned. Because if the goal is for all people to know the salvation of Christ, then him physically reigning in power in heaven, then him reigning in power in heaven is much more important than him physically reigning in Jerusalem. That doesn't matter. If he can be in heaven reigning, then that is what's important. His ascension marks the hope of the worldwide, worldwide reign of King Jesus, and that's necessary. He has to go to send the Spirit to empower the movement of the kingdom to the ends of the world. He has to ascend. Enthronement in Jerusalem would contain Christ to a specific location. But he says in the Gospels, he says, it's better for me to go. I have to go. Why? So that the Spirit can come. Jesus must ascend, must ascend so that the Spirit can descend. Because when the Spirit comes, the Spirit will always be with you. He will not be bound by a physical body because he will fill and empower all believers at all times. So Jesus tells Mary by the garden tomb, she says, he says, stop clinging to me. 
not because of some mysterious nature of his resurrected body, but to communicate that he is going to ascend. He says, I'm ascending to my father. He's saying, don't, don't give in to this desire to keep me on, on earth. It's understandable, but it's wrong. It's better for him to go because in going, he sends the spirit and the spirit brings the power and the power sends us into the world as witnesses. We need Jesus to ascend so that the spirit can descend and so we can be sent with the power to spread God's kingdom to the ends of the earth. In everything that's happening here, I think in his words and in his actions, Jesus is preparing and equipping his followers for their task as witnesses, for our task as witness and he, witnesses. And he's saying lots of things, but he's saying, at least he's saying, the goal of the kingdom is spiritual. It is not political. I'm not going to Jerusalem. That is not the goal. The goal is spiritual. It's life transformation. That's the goal of the kingdom. The goal of the kingdom is spiritual, not political. The goal of the kingdom is worldwide, not local. The goal of the kingdom is worldwide, not local. It's not just Jerusalem. It's not just Israel. It's the ends of the earth. That's the goal. I'm not going to Jerusalem. I'm going to heaven so that I can send you everywhere. And the full reign of the kingdom is future, not present. The full reign of Christ's kingdom is future. It's not present. It's not happening now. It is here. It's already here, but it's not yet fully here. It will not come in a moment. The kingdom of God grows. It expands over time. It's like a mustard seed. The smallest of all seeds. But it grows huge over time. It doesn't happen in a moment. So there they are on the Mount of Olives. Jesus commissions them. Tells them you're going to be my witnesses to the end of the earth. This is bigger than you guys ever imagined. And then he starts to rise. <laughs> Can you imagine? I don't know what that would look like. He's taken from them into heaven and he disappears into a cloud. I can still remember this moment from the old Southeast Christian Church Easter pageant. <laughs> Some of you remember that. Jesus is surrounded by his disciples. He walks down the, the center aisle in that huge church. It's on the first floor. And all of a sudden, he starts to rise. <laughs> and he rises all the way up to this really bright light in the third balcony. And it totally caught me by surprise. I had no idea that it was going to happen. Of course, when the disciples gathered around him, they were hooking him up on some sort of harness. This was not magic. You know, and he just lifted right up. It was amazing. It was, it was wonderful. It was just, it, I can still see it. It was so joyful. And we know at the end of, of Luke that the disciples returned to Jerusalem with great joy. That's what Luke tells us. But here in Acts, he also records this, this moment of tension, you know, this moment where there's this strange mix of emotions going on. I think they're astonished. I think they're, they're sad. I think they don't really know what to think. This is different than all of the other times that Jesus had left them during these, these 40 days. And I think purposely so. 
I was reading John Stott, and he was talking about this, that, that after 40 days of coming and going, this dramatic exit makes it clear that Jesus is truly leaving this time, and he's not coming back. This is, this is it for a little while until he returns in power. And it's time for you guys. I'm not coming back. We're not doing any more teachings about the kingdom sessions. It's time to get about the business of expanding the kingdom, of being the witnesses like I've called you to do. Do what I've asked you to do because I'm, I'm leaving now. And yet they all just sort of stand there because Jesus has been ripped from their lives. Think about that. Had Jesus had returned to them. After three days, they thought he was dead. And then he came back. They get 40 days with him, and now he's leaving again. What a roller coaster of emotions. Can you imagine what they're feeling? And so they just sort of stare into the sky, I imagine, in silence. Probably not so much at the miracle of the ascension, but more at the loss of this friend, of their, of their Savior. They're wondering, you know, maybe he's going to come back. I don't know. Maybe they're straining to see him. We let a balloon go into the air not too long ago. And we just kept watching, you know, to see how far we could see it go up into the sky. And eventually we couldn't see it anymore. And I just wonder if the disciples are just still looking. Can we still see him anywhere? I don't know how long they stood there. There's no time stamp. But eventually it's time to get moving. And so God gets them moving by sending two messengers. If you want to do a parallel study, Luke 24 uh, four to seven, especially, there's some interesting parallels to the resurrection account. So I, I think these are probably the, t- the same two angels. I don't know why it wouldn't be. But interesting, we, we make a big deal out of the fact that there were two angels at the resurrection account. This is a big deal that angels show up here to the disciples to talk to them. And they ask the disciples a question just as they had asked Mary a question. You remember the question they asked Mary? Why are you looking for the living among the dead? One of the great questions of the Bible. Here's another good one. Why are you guys standing here staring into the sky? (laughs) Both are saying you're doing something you shouldn't be doing. You don't look for the dead among the living. And after Jesus ascends, you don't just stand around and stare into the sky. The point is, get going, guys. Go back to Jerusalem. You don't need to worry about Jesus. They say, Jesus is going to return, just as he went. I love, I love how it says, this Jesus, this same Jesus. The, the exact same guy is coming back, just in the same way. He will return. I think that says something to us about those that have gone on before us. I was thinking about that, that Jesus comes just as the way that he was. Obviously, he's resurrected but that there's something to the effect of the resurrection that these same people that we've known, will, we will see them again in resurrected bodies, the same people. But also, I think more poignantly here, more related to what's happening, is the hope of the return of Christ empowers us, empowers the disciples to continue to be witnesses. It reminds us that there's something coming, that the kingdom, while it is it's present, it, it has an end. There, there's a purpose. There's something that we're working towards. There is a great final hope for which we are longing for. Other religions teach that that history is cyclical, but Christianity says it is linear and there is a moment. It's a never-ending line, but the moment comes when there is an end and Christ returns and his kingdom is then 
forever. There's an end to some of what we see. It, it moves in a, in a moment, towards a moment. And that hope doesn't mean that we should stand still and stare into the sky. That's part of what the, the angels are saying to us. Don't just stand around and stare in the sky. Don't be so preoccupied with the time of Christ's return or how he will turn or when it will happen that you, just, that you don't do anything. Stop staring into the sky. The angels wouldn't let the disciples stay in that state for very long. We, we can long for Christ's return but not be preoccupied with it. The promised return calls us to be busy about the work that Christ has called us to do and that he has equipped us to do. He's prepared us. He's equipped us. Now, go do it. And he, he will return. What a wonderful promise. As sure as the Spirit fell on the day of Pentecost, not many days from now, Jesus will return. I don't know how many days, but I know it will be soon-ish. The, the promise is that just as he went, he will come again. And it won't be in that moment some sort of handful of people who see him. We're told it will be a, like a lightning flash that the whole world witnesses. And it's not going to be just people in Jerusalem who are shouting Hosanna, but every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. And for now, we are witnesses. Just as the disciples were. Witnesses of what Christ has done. Witnesses through the prophetic word made more sure that this is true. We don't stare into the sky. We don't seek political kingdoms. We are a part of the kingdom of God that is ever expanding in spirit and power that he's called us to be a part of. And we are fully equipped. We are fully prepared for this task that we have been given. And privileged to have this opportunity to joyfully join in the spread of the message of the kingdom to the ends of the earth for the glory of King Jesus. This is what we're called to do. We're prepared for it. We are equipped for it. And we are called to be witnesses to it. Today we get to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And as I was thinking about the Lord's Supper, I thought how well it encompasses in this amazing way almost everything that we have talked about the remembrance of who Christ is and, and what he has done, but also this this longing for his return, for his kingdom. It's a rich feast. It's a simple feast, but it's full of of flavors, flavors for our hearts and for our souls that minister to us in different ways. And so I invite you to reflect on all those things, to reflect maybe on some of the sadness that the disciples felt as we talked about it, to re reflect on the joy of the resurrection, to reflect on the hope of Christ's return.